We have finished our study in Romans 13, 1 through 7, but I want to give, God willing, uh, today and next week also a couple of follow-up studies and some further thought and application of these things to our present circumstances. <clears throat> we concluded with a series of questions last Lord's Day, and the very last one was this, should a religious majority bully its will over the non-religious? And that, uh, the purpose of that question, maybe poorly worded, was to prompt thinking about our present circumstances with regard to civil government and the the answer that some are giving or a solution that some are offering to our present circumstances. <clears throat> it is apparent that throughout the world generally, biblical Christianity is under threat from a variety of sources. And in one nation it may be Islam, in another nation it may be uh, an atheistic civil government, and so on. In our nation where religious liberty has been a feature protected by what we know as the Bill of Rights, <clears throat> the threat to biblical Christianity takes subtle forms. The attitude toward the Bible in the common culture is that it is no longer the Word of God. It is, or at least it, it includes uh, hate speech. For the time being, you are free to believe what you want to believe as far as biblical Christianity is concerned, but do not expect to express that belief outside of a church service. And of course, when we are at that point, it's only a matter of time when the control of church services will come. That is not far down the domino row. <clears throat> in our present circumstances, in our country, biblical definitions for human life, manhood, womanhood, and marriage no longer have any place Biblical definitions for these things no longer have any place in federal law and policy. And from there it flows to business and the corporate world and uh, economics and so on. We now wonder when those who think biblically and teach others to think biblically will be confined to mental institutions, which was what happened in the Soviet Union in many cases. They said, if you believe that, that book about that God, then you're, you're crazy. You're out of your mind. You, you need some medication. You, you, you belong in a mental institution, and so on. And that happened in many, many cases. Or maybe even more difficult in some ways, to be shipped off to a labor camp or a re-education uh, facility. That seems a little far-fetched to us. It seemed far-fetched to Christians in Russia until Stalin took power. Perhaps more a more immediate 
way of dealing with uh, people like you and me is to be cast into a digital gulag in which we cannot buy or sell, trade, travel, and so on. And, And that, my friends, if you haven't been listening and paying attention, that is, we are very close to that. they've already implemented exactly that in other countries and uh, the, the, the blocks are being laid for that as a foundation in our own country in these very days Um, okay globalists in charge of our courts And, and that's a whole study in itself. They envision an atheistic government. And they, as much as they can, implement an atheistic government. In the meanwhile, in some parts, some pockets of our country, some states and cities, really, the threat of Muslim Sharia law continues to grow, along with the population of Muslims, either from abroad or else those who have converted to Islam from our own shores. And so we're in a perplexing situation. Some Christians are hoping to restore the Christian faith to its former prominence here. And hope to have it even more firmly entrenched in our public life than it ever was before. Some go so far as to advocate what amounts to a Christian takeover of government and public institutions. And they look to the Old Testament as a pattern for this. The theocracy of Israel under God as a pattern for us today. And some of their arguments are thought-provoking, maybe perplexing. And I just want to offer some thoughts on this in particular here uh, this afternoon. I don't have all the answers. I really don't think anybody has all the answers outside of God himself. I don't think we'll see all the answers until Christ comes again and reigns forever on a new heaven and new earth. But we do want to try to be as careful, as biblical, as consistent as we can. So let me begin by saying the place of religion in public life is undeniable. One of the, the, the building blocks, or maybe we'd say part of the cement that holds a, a nation or a civilization together is its beliefs. And its beliefs about God. If it is not the God of the Bible, it will be the God of Islam, or it will be the God of atheism. (laughs) Who is the God of atheism? Well, that's man himself. He becomes his own God. And in that sense, atheism is every bit as much a religion as anything else. Man is religious by nature, and he will worship someone. If no one else, he'll just worship himself. And so a common religion is undeniably one of the elements that binds a nation together. The founders of our original colonies and states and nation were either Christians 
truly or Christians nominally or at least friendly to the benefits that Christianity brings to a society. And most of the colonies that ended up becoming states under the federal system had some official endorsement and enforcement of Christianity. In some of the northern states, it was the Congregational Church that was supported by the state. Elsewhere, and in some of the middle states, it was the Anglican or Episcopal Church uh, whose ministers were uh, supported by the taxes that the people paid and so on. It was the Baptists in Virginia in particular who were responsible for the First Amendment to our Constitution, which says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. It's interesting, it's just a fact of history that it was not until quite a few years after the ratification of the Constitution and the first ten amendments that some of the individual states began to follow this uh, first amendment. The amendment only regulated the federal government, not the state governments. It was not up until um, the... 1810s, as I recall, that the state of Massachusetts, for example, enacted full religious liberty and followed the tenor of the First Amendment. <clears throat> we must understand, and I can't emphasize this enough, the generation of the founders of our nation was influenced greatly by what was then known as the evangelical revival. We now call it the Great Awakening. In those days it was called the evangelical revival. Gospel influence was at a, an extraordinarily high point that Great Awakening was at its peak in the late 1740s. <coughs> or, well, it, throughout the 1740s. The men that were founders of our nation were raised in that environment. That's, what, that's, that's the world that they knew. When they sat down to form a federal government, the government that they set up reflected their expectations. Their expectation that this gospel influence would always be here. It's all they'd known. With a population of people that were generally self-disciplined by common grace, which is the, the, the fruit of the great revival that occurred, government could afford to be limited and personal freedom expanded. These founders assumed that most people would do what is outwardly right most of the time. And with that arrangement, you can give great liberty and limited government. And there's quotations, quite a few, by different ones from those days. I have these from John Adams that you're probably familiar with. 
He says exactly what I've laid out here. We have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. They established this form of government and these checks and balances assuming that the influence of the gospel would remain at uh, some high, uh, significant level. And yet, uh, as the First Amendment expresses, and mainly by, again, the influence of the Baptists in Virginia, John Leland, and it's a thrilling story, you can read about it, these founders were determined to enshrine liberty of conscience and freedom to worship God according to the dictates of conscience. Or if a person wanted to to worship nothing at all, then that was allowed also. No one would be forced to attend church or even support churches by federal taxes. And again, it took another generation practically, but all the states one by one got on board as well at the state level. By default, the only religion present was that of the Holy Scriptures. Roman Catholicism was virtually non-existent in those days. A very small uh, population, a very insignificant population of Jewish people as well. <clears throat> so what emerged was a rather fragile and unofficial acknowledgement in public life of the God of the Bible without going very far in defining him or even in defining uh, redemption. This nominal Christian atmosphere was, I say, the effect of the Great Awakening. It was what flowed from it. It, Not saying that even the majority of citizens were, were truly saved, but that the influence of the gospel was that great upon them. Well, as you know, other revivals continued fairly regularly for the next uh, nearly hundred years. And these periodic revivals, kind of over a longer period of time known as the Second Great Awakening, kept Christianity as the dominant religious force in the society. Around the last third of the 1800s, the revivals died. The revivals did not continue. And that's a very sad development. What did come was a a sad and poor substitute for revival that we might call revivalism from which we still suffer to this day. But there's a a world of difference between heaven-sent revival and that which man works up emotionally. We have a book on the table called Revival and Revivalism, and that's a very helpful and informative read. Since those days, each generation has descended more and more into a non-Christian way of thinking. So we come to the point where we are today, and we've reached what is sort of like a tipping point in which Christianity, we might say the goose that laid the golden egg, 
is now ready for slaughter. Is not welcome in public life as it used to be. It's viewed as the the villain. It is blamed for everything that is wrong. Secularism and humanism is now our national religious orientation. And that, of course, spells trouble for Christians. Some Christians are becoming desperate and maybe in various degrees of panic. We see what's going on. We see how much ground has been lost. We're losing precious freedoms. And the freedom of religion does not stand alone. It is something of a measure and an index of all other freedoms. It's rightly placed in the First Amendment. We look back at better days in the past and we wonder how can we retrieve what's been lost? What should we do? We've got to do something. Well, for some, the answer is political action. Influencing government at all levels. Passing legislation. And so on. It's interesting to note that such an approach is only possible in the kind of republic that we have or that we used to have anyway in a monarchy or under an emperor there would be no such uh, option as uh, political action and so on but since this door is open to us some say this is the route that we should take and bring the kingdom of God to earth and exercise God's authority over our city and county and state and nation and hopefully, eventually, over the whole world. So to address that development, let me begin to say, we agree that the scriptures teach that God is the king. He is the only king over all. And there is no sphere of life, whether public life or private life or family life or church life or work life or business life, etc., that is exempt from God's claim of authority. All should bow the knee to him in every area of life. And every Christian should use his or her influence for the glory of God wherever God providentially puts him. If a Christian gets into public office, he should be salt and light in that office and in that realm. But there are causes for concern. With this approach as our main method of approach. Previous attempts at a Christian civil government throughout the last 2,000 years of history have been short-lived and I think it's safe to say have always ended in a a strong backlash against it in in a pretty short order. The most ungodly and atheistic governments in the world today are in some parts of Europe, and I think uh, arguably Holland might be at the top of the list, which in the early 1900s had 
perhaps the most recent attempt at a Christianized government. And as we look, uh, for example, at uh, Germany in the days of Luther and shortly after, Christian sacral societies invariably led to persecutions or persecution for Christians who did not fit in with the brand of Christianity that held power. Baptists, and of course that's a pretty wide swath, but uh, sound ones as well as unsound ones suffered in, in Lutheran Germany because they did not follow the, the Lutheran model. And honestly, the linchpin of a sacral society is always infant baptism. <clears throat> a man I was having uh, this discussion with some years ago, uh, I was able to say to him, well, if, if my model wins the day, then you'll have freedom of religion uh, just like everyone else. And he said in response, well, if my model wins, then people like you, Baptists in particular, would be fined or imprisoned or banished, but we probably wouldn't kill you. Well, I really appreciated that. That was very generous of him. The Christianity that comes with a sacral society is nominal, formal, empty Christianity, which is the very enemy of true biblical Christianity. And the movement that is getting some attention today towards uh, a new sacral society or a new Christendom is in my opinion, a desperate retreat, not a gospel advance after the New Testament order. It is looking to civil government to do what only the gospel of Christ can do. Now, some might say... We're not going to make the same mistakes that Luther made and that maybe Calvin or Kuiper or whoever else made. We've, we've learned and we're going to do it right this time. <clears throat> that sounds remarkably like the communists of today who insist that the pure form of communism has never been tried and we've worked out the kinks and, and we're going to get it right this time. There's something that, that troubles me about that approach. We must be guided by the New Testament. A return to an Old Testament model is what Jesus called putting old wine into new wine skins. Israel in the Old Testament was in a unique position that is unrepeatable. And the, the sacral society of Old Testament Israel finds no support in the New Testament. And honestly, I don't believe that the Old Testament arrangement was as wonderful and uh, grand as some people seem to think. You read the Old Testament and read the historical portions and the, the laments of the Psalms and the, the rebukes of the prophets 
And you read of ungodly people. How often do the Psalms, for example, speak about the the wicked and the ungodly? And it's not talking about the Egyptians and the Babylonians. It's talking about Israelites. When it's referring to those other outside nations, they're called the heathen. It was within Israel that there were wicked people, oppressors. Uh, I just read the other day the psalm about the, the corrupt judges. And of course, all those things were outlawed. God had outlawed them. But they continued on and in... In many generations, at least, apart from some seasons of revival, prevailed in that Old Testament arrangement. The New Testament presents a different approach. Or maybe it it is a, uh, the, the full development in which there is what we might call a conversion model. And the advance of the gospel and the kingdom of Christ without the aid of civil government and even with all of the opposition that civil government could muster against it as individuals were saved Their lives transformed society in some places, changed. And we'll look at an example or two here of this in a moment. But as as there is a change at the grassroots level, it comes to affect public life and public policy and laws and, and so on. But we have to get the cause and effect right. It was not from the top down. It wasn't from Caesar down. It was from Christians at the grassroots, from the bottom up. And again, this is what occurred more recently uh, at the founding of our nation. It was the gospel influence that that made this atmosphere in which our nation got started. And I believe that that is the only thing that will restore any semblance of decency and sanity and morality. We need a revival like the great awakening. This is the only hope, or maybe to say it more uh, broadly, the gospel is the only hope for any man or for any society of men. And trying to implement the effects of the gospel without the power of the gospel is an impossible venture. It is doomed to fail. I don't see anywhere in the New Testament where the goal that is set before us is a Christianized nation. If anywhere, we would see it in Romans 13. If if any passage was going to go in that direction, surely it would be here. There's no concept in the New Testament of a so-called Christian nation. And I think it's true to say that in the biblical sense of the word, there never has been and never will be a Christian nation unless we mean nation in a in a metaphorical sense as uh, you are a chosen nation and so on. Certainly, the gospel is to go to all nations. 
And God will see to it that some in all nations are saved. But there's no hint of a Christianized nation or world. The New Testament goal, rather, is this new heaven and new earth. We can call that a Christianized uh, heaven and earth when Christ comes again. So let me read from uh, Acts chapter 19. This is the kind of model that the New Testament sets for us. Here is Paul ministering in Ephesus. And he had been there for two years, according to verse 10. Started out in the, in the synagogue ends up in uh, a school of some kind. And it says this continued by the space of two years so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Many were converted in that time. Verse 20 says, So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. And then at this point, the influence of the gospel in Ephesus was so great that it came to have an economic impact upon those who were making idols. And so what do they do? Well, in so many words, they run to the authorities to try to get the Christians put out of business. So it says... Uh, verse 23, at, that, at the same time there arose no small stir about that way or about that, that belief in Jesus. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, which made silver shrines for Diana, brought no small gain unto the craftsmen, whom he called together with the workmen of like occupation and said, Sirs, ye know that by this craft we have our wealth Moreover, ye see and hear that not alone at Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul hath persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they be no gods which are made with hands, so that not only this our craft is in danger to be set at naught, but also that the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised, and her magnificence should be destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worshipeth, and so on. You're familiar with how this turned out. <clears throat> the gospel had such an impact that the culture as a whole was affected by it. And the men who made idols, are their, their income is threatened. And so they take matters into their own hands. Note that Paul did not come to Ephesus two years earlier and come to the uh, the mayor or the city council or whatever and say, you know, <clears throat> I want to propose that we outlaw idol making and we outlaw the worship of Diana <clears throat> because Christ is Lord here, not Diana. And the laws of Ephesus should reflect that. Rather, what did happen was that the gospel influence accomplished something better than that. Something far more lasting and far-reaching. Even back in chapter 17, Paul and others had been accused of turning the world upside down. And wherever they went, they did it simply by the proclamation of the truth and the God-given power of that truth being manifested in hearts and lives at that grassroots level. You could see the same thing back in chapter 16 in Philippi. Christianity was not the common religion of the Roman Empire, 
but it flourished within the empire. Nonetheless, by the power of God. So, this is how societies are impacted. It's, it's simple. It's with the gospel. But it's not simply the power of man and, and, and the man's ability. We are dependent upon the Lord. And that's why I said earlier, we need a revival of the greatest dimensions at this time. What is the expectation throughout the New Testament? For believers, the expectation is persecution. Nowhere do we read that once we get into power, then we can persecute the pagans. No, or we can outlaw them or banish them or anything like that. It's the other way around. The New Testament expectation is persecution, and it's mentioned often. Jesus spoke of it in the Sermon on the Mount uh, in various ways. Uh, Paul says to the Romans, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. This whole present time, until Christ comes again and we're glorified with him, is a time in which we expect persecution. Again, there's never any instruction on how to install a nominal Christianity for the benefit of society or how to make goats behave like sheep without being transformed into sheep. The Lord himself asks this question, When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Paul tells Timothy, evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse. Peter tells us we're strangers and pilgrims sojourning here. Of course, that's different from the Old Testament model. In, within the nation of Israel, the Israelites were not strangers and pilgrims. They, they occupied. The land was theirs. But this is one of the great changes between the Old Testament and the New. We're pilgrims passing through here. We do belong to another nation, a spiritual nation, another kingdom, a spiritual kingdom. And every evidence throughout the New Testament is that that's what's going to be the case Until Christ comes again, we're always going to be this persecuted minority. And we shouldn't fret that. Uh, God will give us grace, just as he has given our forefathers grace to suffer when called upon to do so. And while we certainly thank God for the common grace and the influence of the gospel that lifts the whole level of Society, we understand that that is a pretty much rare occurrence uh, in 2,000 years of church history. (coughs) We expect persecution. In fact, persecution keeps Christianity pure. It is when there's no persecution and everything's going easy for us that Christianity becomes corrupted. But it's not all negative and pessimistic. We do also expect from the New Testament for the gospel to gain many hearts. Christ came to save many. A remnant will be saved and persevere and bear witness to the truth. Romans 11 indicates that there's some kind of jealousy between Christians who are from a Jewish background and those from a Gentile background and so on. And the Lord uses that godly jealousy to provoke them and to provoke others to come to Christ. And so there is always reason for hope and 
encouragement. God does send revival at some of the most surprising times. And in that way, he keeps evil in bounds. We need a revival now to keep evil in bounds in this world. The New Testament, and and I know we've mentioned this a little bit in Romans 13, but I'll say it again here just briefly. The New Testament holds low expectations of civil rulers. Paul tells the Corinthians to avoid the courts. He doesn't say now, you know, in 2,000 years, the Christians are going to have the upper hand and they're going to control the courts and it's, it's going to be much better, but no, there, there's never any indication of that. It, it, he simply says, stay out of court <laughs> as much as you can. It's as if to say, expect bad government, expect unjust judges. We're told to pray for rulers. And in the, the context or in, in the explanation given there in, in 1 Timothy 2, the best that we seem to hope for from earthly rulers is that we might live a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. And so, Christians are salt and light to those around them. And they have some impact to some degree upon those around them. And we ought to desire that and we ought to pray for that. By God's grace, we ought to be that. We are, in fact a conscience to those around us who so often don't want a conscience. There is a duty uh, or, or an opportunity to inform civil rulers of their duty before God. And you see that in John the Baptist preaching to Herod, telling him to repent and believe. Uh, But you notice John's message to Herod was the same as his message to everyone else. Repent and believe. And from all the evidence there about those occasions where John preached to Herod, it was John preaching to Herod. It wasn't John preaching to others about Herod. It was John preaching to Herod. And New Testament Christians have that that God-given duty. Of course, only God can change the heart of a Herod. And when he does, it seems to be a pretty rare event. As far as uh, our present opportunities and duties in this realm, in our present system, we can vote and we can communicate with our legislators who represent us and so on. And that's a good thing. But that should not be our main weapon. It should not be our principal focus. Our weapon is the word of God, the gospel of Christ, prayer. To quote John MacArthur, the mission of the church is not to change society although that is often a beneficial byproduct of faithful ministry and living. But the mission of the church is to worship and serve the Lord and to bring others to saving faith in Him. End quote. And again, the byproduct of that will be, to some degree, the, the, the changing of society at the grassroots 
We must never confuse the byproduct, however, with the main thing and the mission itself. So I'm sure there's much more that could be said. Maybe this will whet your appetite to study and consider, dig into it more. I've come to this conclusion. Perhaps part of the curse on the human race is that there's no perfect form of human government. And part of the curse on the human race is that there's no hope in human government. And that, in fact, no one has all the answers. And it's a perplexing and, in many ways, confusing subject. But what is clear is the only hope for man or mankind is the gospel of Christ in its regenerating, transforming power. And so let us endeavor to have a robust conversion model. Winning hearts, not imposing our will, more bullying, if you want to say that, upon others. In the long term, the winning of hearts is the best strategy. And that's where our labor and emphasis and prayer should be. Yes, some battles we will win, some battles we will lose, but final victory is ours. It's ours already. It is assured through Christ, our King. And we look forward to that new heaven and new earth where righteousness dwells. Even so come, Lord Jesus. Lord willing, we'll pursue this a bit further next time. But uh, as I said last time, let's pray for wisdom and divine guidance as we live in these days and want to act and react biblically and not out of a state of desperation.